He was not a tall man, Tormund Giantsbane, but the gods had given him a broad chest and massive belly. Mance Raider had named him Tormund Hornblower for the power of his lungs, and was wont to say that Tormund could laugh the snow off mountaintops. In his wrath, his bellows reminded John of a mammoth trumpeting. That day, Tormund bellowed often and loudly. He roared, he shouted, he slammed his fist against the table so hard that a flagon of water overturned and spilled. A horn of mead was never far from his hand, so the spittle he sprayed when making threats was sweet with honey. He called Jon Snow a craven, a liar, a turncloak, cursed him for a black-hearted, buggering kneeler, cursed him for a black-hearted, buggering kneeler, a, a robber, and a carrion crow, accused him of wanting to fuck the free folk up the arse. Twice he flung his drinking horn at Jon's head, though only after he had emptied it. Tormund was not the sort of man to waste good mead. John let it all wash over him. He never raised his own voice nor answered threat with threat, but neither did he give more ground than he had come prepared to give. Finally, as the shadows of the afternoon grew long outside the tent, Tormund Giantsbane, tall talker, hornblower, and breaker of ice, Tormund Thunderfist, husband to bears, mead king of Ruddy Hall, speaker to gods and father of hosts, thrust out his hand. Done then, and may the gods forgive me. There's a hundred mothers never will, I know. John clasped the offered hand. The words of his oath rang through his head. I am the sword in the, sword in the darkness. darkness. Let's try it again. <laughs> One, two, three. I, I am the, the sword, sword in the... We Why have to just go confidently. So I don't know. We just have to go confidently. Ready? One, two, three, and then we say it confidently. Yeah, but you, you can't say it that slow. You have to say it's, it like normal. Because I'm just trying to say it with you and there's a lag. So oh, I, okay. I will say it normally. It's my fault. Ready? One, two. The problem was I forgot we were doing it at first. <laughs> okay, ready? One, two, three. I'm the sword, I am the sword in, the, in the, darkness. the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire, the fire that, burns that burns against, against the, cold. the cold. The light, the light that, brings that brings the, the dawn. dawn. The, horn the horn that wakes the sleepers. The shield that guards the realms, the realms of, of men. men. And for him, a new refrain. I am the guard who opened the gates and let the foe march through. He would have given much and more to know that he was doing the right thing, but he had gone too far to turn back. Done and done, he said. Welcome back to our podcast. John 11, A Dance of Dragons. But first, recent news from our fearless leader, author, proletariat, man about town, Best George R. R. Martin. Owner of railroads has made a statement, an update about his life and within it news of the winds of winter. He's actually posted, he's actually done a couple live journal updates since. So I'm looking at the time of recording. He posted this on June 23rd. So it was about a week ago at the time of us recording and he's posted a little bit since then. But, um, obviously we're going to be talking about the one. With all of his writing updates, which you, I found. I was just going to say, can you catch up everyone, catch everyone up that's listening? Yeah, I found it to be very exciting. So if you, for whatever reason, are not frequently frequenting George R. R. Martin's not a blog, the last remaining person to be keeping Live Journal alive, he <laughs> gives a pretty lengthy update just about how he's been doing in the pandemic and everything that's been going on for him. And he talks pretty candidly, in my mind, about the winds of winter and his progress that he's been making. And he talks about how he's making steady progress. He's finished a couple chapters 
along the way. He's It says, I finished a new chapter yesterday, another one three days ago, another one the previous week. Hmm. He says that he's not writing at the pace that he was when he was doing... What was he? Which one was he talking about? I'm trying to scroll scroll through here. No kidding. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> he said he's not writing at the pace that he used to be when he was writing Storm of Swords, but that he's still chugging along. And so mm. then he goes into talking about like some of the different characters that he's been, been spending time with. And then he says that, cool. that he's going to keep on keeping on. So. He's such a tease. He's teasing so much in that post. He's talking about a lot of things, but whenever he's mentioning Winds of Winter and character names, chapter titles, or not chapter titles, but the character names are the chapter titles. Or well, at the he, very end, he says, now you'll have to excuse me, Arya's, Arya's calling. calling. I think she means to kill someone. I'm like, what okay. Do you think he's really, that's like actually happening or he's just saying that because he knows that everybody's going to go crazy for it? You know what I mean? I think it's actually happening. I think it's actually happening, which means that it's really happening which also means that at the same time if we can all visualize this together this person just like all of us is a human and he's the actually the one writing this story and right now he like he said is actually locked in or he's i don't know if he's locked himself inside i'm, I'm imagining him he's locked himself inside a cabin <laughs> his mountain re- retreat and he's actually writing the winds of winter this is something that maybe we could have daydreamed about Someone who looks like George R. R. Martin that's important to all of us like he is doing this right now, especially in a time of a global pandemic, is kind of a a funny piece of imagery that I think something that he might come up with, but it's mm-hmm. actually happening. He says, yeah, was, I can. We've been saying or people have been saying that, oh, now thanks to the world screeching to a halt, he's going to actually have time to write and do something. And he's going to actually be able to dedicate his time without any interruptions, blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me like. That probably is the case. He's been making steady progress, which is really exciting. Yeah. When he said he wasn't on the same track as a storm of swords, it makes me think about the sort of momentum that comes with working on creative projects. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that that will make this a better or worse book? If you think about how four and five compare to storm, what do you think? I mean, I don't think that that necessarily... I don't think that the pace that he's writing Woods of Winter lends itself to anything about how good or bad the book is going to be, because I think you could easily argue in both ways that spending this much time is going to make it worse. Spending this much time is going to make it better. I don't, I mean, I personally don't think that that really makes that much of a difference. But there's, there's so much excitement. Think about if you're a painter and you're really excited about the, the curve of this woman's shoulder that you're working on. You're like, Oh my gosh, I'm so inspired by the thing that falls directly behind it in this painting and also how the light hits it is maybe I'm inspired by a certain thing that I'm seeing or someone else's work at this certain point in time. And maybe he writes a note on that. And he remembers, oh, I'll do this in this chapter, but maybe he doesn't come back to it because he knows COVID is happening or because he knows that there's a few years to the next series or because he knows that we've been waiting so long for the winds of winter in the first place that he can kind of take his time a little bit longer. I make these same excuses in my life for different things. Nothing <laughs> as important as bringing book six, but could he potentially be going off track and losing a little bit of the steam and thus creating something that seems a little less cohesive than the momentum of a storm of swords. I don't know if he works that way. All of his writing might be improved by time when I I used to think about it. 
that was the obvious answer to me. And then when I think about artists in my past, when I was a kid growing up, like I think about Deathly Hallows and my overall impression of that was that it was rushed. And I don't know if it's going to necessarily impact what he's putting out, but I think it's something to think about whenever artists are on a tear, the kind of work that comes out of it might carry the same spirit as the chapter before it or the chapter before that or the chapter after that. And it makes me kind of afraid sometimes when people take a lot of time, I'm wondering how inspired they were, whether or not it was that exciting and, do we want people putting out stuff or that isn't that exciting or, or on the flip side, the level of care and detail warrants itself to spending this much time. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I don't think the length of time is necessarily going to change the quality per se. And I mean, when you think about, it, he says way back in 99, when I was deep in the writing of storm of swords, I mean, that was, we were all different people back then. Like he was a different author back then. And he was, his writing style was different, you know, Mm -hmm. than it is now. And so I think that that's just kind of the progression of a series that takes this long. And I don't have experience personally. I don't think many people do with a series taking this long to be published. And so, you know, who's to say what that's going to do to the quality. But I think something that surprised me a little bit though, is for a long time, there was a lot of discussion that he was really close to finishing and he had all those deadlines that we were talking about Mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. Years ago. Reading this made me realize like how deeply far off from those deadlines he was. And I think for a long time, at least I felt like he was really close to finishing because he had those deadlines that he bumped up against and he was close, but not quite there. But reading this to me, it sounds like he was nowhere near anywhere near where he was supposed to be when a couple years ago, when we were talking about those different fall deadlines that he had. And so, you know, it's, so silly of us because it's not like he didn't say I'm not finished. I mean, he clearly said I'm not finished. And I'm still working we're all on gonna it. Take but we all thought liberties. it was like okay, another six months, another seven months, <laughs> right? So that's just what we're gonna I'm do. Planning my life but... around it at that point, but at least see, I was really grateful for this when you texted me that he had that he had put this out because at least there's a, again another thing that we can kind of check back on and mm-hmm. reference not only the plans for our podcasts and our lives, but just how we are reset our expectations about when all of this is to come out. Uh, right. And it's said, just cool to check in with him. I can always visit Wellington next year when I hope that both COVID-19 and the winds of winter will be done. What was the date for that con in New Zealand? The end of July, early August. So, so in a couple of weeks. Plus a year. Yeah. World's con is always like at the end of summer, near the so, tail end of summer. So add on to that. I feel like we've had this conversations on the podcast before, so bear with us. Add on to that, what do you guys think? Maybe four or five months recommended time for uh, maybe bouncing back with editor, thinking about book covers, getting them printed, planning a secrecy schedule. Because, you know, that's going to be a thing, right? Remember when Hallows came out, the uh, entire book leaked? Someone went through the entire book and took meticulous picture by picture and leaked the entire book in one convenient torrent file. That what some of that? us read and some of us didn't. <laughs> what what could uh what do you think it's gonna be like for this? I mean will it be six months after that time that he's done writing or do you think it's gonna be we've talked about this before, do you think it's gonna be a, a Beyonce drop that because of secrecy? 
Oh, yeah. Is uh, maybe know. maybe creative. Like I feel like they're going to have to be creative about this. I'm almost glad. You know what? I am glad that all of this is happening post, hopefully, post-pandemic. Post- yeah, I was going to say, what are we going to be in longer? Are we still going to be in pandemic times? Or are we going to be in winds of winter times? Who's to say which one's going to? What's the difference at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what is the difference at this point? It's exciting, though. It's cool. I, it's a, I think it's an interesting problem. How do we have the winds of winter in a post-Game of Thrones world, but also in a post-just everybody's losing their shit world? Yeah. I think it's really well, interesting. I think that. So near the bottom of the post, he checks in very briefly with House of the Dragon. And he says it's still flying along wonderfully, regardless of what's been going on. So I think that to me, I think and hope that we'll at least get the first season of House of the Dragon or the first like iteration. I don't know how many seasons or whatever, if it's going to, you know, we don't know any of that kind of stuff. I'm worried about it. I'm thinking that we'll we'll probably get the first of that before we get Winds of Winter. And so I don't know if we'll necessarily even be in a post Game of Thrones world because potentially House of the Dragon could, I don't think it'll ever reach the same level of hype, but it'll be out there. You know, that's the way I see it playing out a little bit. So I'm just talking about as far as canon is concerned, because we've already seen the blossoming of the same storylines, but obviously we haven't gotten the the full gist of the picture and we're waiting for his actual books to come out. And it's just kind of weird because the the series that was made based on this book series was such a smash hit and it was already finished and there's still such a gap. Interesting times. It's exciting. Yeah. Another one. Another thing that I was very excited about is that he says at the very end as well, we have feature films in development adapted for my story, Sand Kings and the Ice Dragon and the Lost Lands. Um, and Sand Kings is my favorite one of his short stories. And so I'm very excited about that. What is so awesome about that? I just like it. You should read it. You know, when you read something and it just kind of sits in you mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen very often. So I just really liked it. So I'm excited to see. I know it's been adapted in different ways before, but I'm excited. How long to see. was it? It's like it's a short story, so I mean, it's like I I can't remember, but makes me think of maybe it's like a concentrated version of his style, where he had less patience to get it out, like he's been doing with the Song of Ice and Fire. No, or it's just like a different genre of writing. I mean, you look at like his other writing projects, like Wild Cards and all his thousands of other short stories and his screenplays or his, what do you call them when you write for TV? Um, is that screenplays? Screenplay? Sure. <laughs> okay. Script. That's all just like different styles and methods of writing. I don't think one's like has anything to do with impatience over the other. Well, I'm just mean like within him, as far as an expression of the art form of his inner monologue and sorry, inner, inner narrative about the stories that he's creating. I feel like whenever it's something that's concentrated and, or whenever it's something that's small and easy to digest, that he has to extend less things. And therefore there might be a more clear picture of what he's trying to convey within the elements of the story and in that small amount of time. And that to me, as someone who might be a George R. R. Martin fan could be really pleasing because you're, 
you're getting like a small dose of what you try to get out of his other stuff. If you're reading something like a song of ice and fire, we're still waiting for it. And so that kind of connects to what I was talking about earlier. If he, if this is a product, I mean, obviously it is a product of all of his, of, of his patient art, artistic skill being blossomed across the MS DOS word file that he's working on. Then this one is, ultra long and ultra thought out. I guess it really comes down to how much work he's actually doing on it, but or how much writing and rewriting and editing, you know, all of that to say, I was thinking about that today when I was reading for this, this chapter, wondering about the Flints and the Norries and other characters like them that give so much context to the moment and who may come back later as important, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if they ever will. And I think there's a lot of characters like that. And if you're this far into A Song of Ice and Fire, I feel like you're sort of as a repeated stress injury, just used to taking in the visceral descriptions of all these people and and having that be the treat and then sort of just getting rid of it and not saving it. Whereas in other books, I feel like the economy of words is usually so sparsely or so well edited, edited down that I'm suspicious every time something new is introduced because I feel like I know that it's going to come back around. But with Song of Ice and Fire, he's really just, I feel like, as it's happening, going along with what's happening. I don't know if the heraldry described in Dorn will ever be necessarily important or the heraldry <laughs> of the Dornish people arriving in in King's Landing will necessarily be important, but... I know that it makes me feel a certain way in the moment, which is a mark of how these chapters go. We talk a lot about how he talks about the sky and the moon and different natural elements reflecting the, uh, the feeling of a character or sort of hardening the, the point that he's trying to make about the current situation. He does a really good job of that in this chapter. Whenever John leaves his meeting with Tormund, and he's noticing how bright and shimmering the wall is. Mm-hmm. And there's also another description. I'll read it whenever we get to it. Or if I can just find it, I'll read it now. Let's see. What's that other description? There's one at the beginning and one near the end. Outside, the day was bright and cloudless. The sun had returned to the sky after a fortnight's absent. Absence And to the south, the wall rose blue, white, and glittering. On days like this, the wall shimmered bright as a septon's crystal, every crack and crevasse lined by sunlight, as frozen rainbows danced and died behind translucent ripples. On days like this, the wall was beautiful. A lot of this stuff, maybe, maybe the first part of that was not necessarily necessary, but it adds so much to what we're doing here. And I really like that that's how he's executing his personal style in this story and that that that's how part of a large it's a large function and he, he goes back to it often how he wants us to feel he's directing us to feel a certain way using those elements and he does the same things with the characters like for example in this chapter we get such a a real idea of who john is meeting with on top of the wall when he meets his men uh bowen marsh flint and nori on top of the wall uh during um sundown but like i said i don't know if necessarily their physical presence is going to be important later and i mean later later down the road like in a way that makes us feel just something like when i meet when i hear about mundungus fletcher and like book two doing something shady 
And then he's doing something shady in the seventh book. But it's such a big part of the story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like I know that he was not mentioned on accident. Right. Right. But George is so obviously gardening so many of these characters. And I'm wondering, because some of them have come back. Some of them have come back, especially people like the Brave Companions. It's like they never quit. They never quit. Right. And there's people we haven't even met yet, like Wind of the White Fawn, etc. The tales are endless. I think that... I see exactly exactly what you're saying. And I feel like just because we're going to meet a character for a few moments or a couple chapters or a few scenes, I don't think necessarily diminishes their importance to the story. And so this idea that like just because they may not be around much longer than this really important conversation that's happening on the top top of the wall doesn't necessarily mean that the, the what they add isn't important or like shouldn't be paid attention to or something like that. And I do think that when we look at like A Song of Ice and Fire and a lot of the people that we've come across that we've either heard in passing or that we see written about in other volumes that aren't necessarily in A Song of Ice and Fire, but like pertain to the world and things like Mm -hmm. that, a lesson that we often see in our own world is that history repeats itself. And so I think that George R. R. Martin's world is rich enough to have those same histories and those same lessons to be learned. And so I think we can often look back through folks that have been before our time in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire to kind of get lessons of how things may or may not play out. And so that's one thought that I had. (laughs) Um. Right. So you're saying it's like it's context in order to... I guess what I was saying, just to sort of hint and color in a specific direction, yeah, you're saying that it's out the world. through a historical lens, not only a sort of physical presence. Yeah, I just think it's all like additional world building or something. And so right. I don't necessarily. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. And my brain just doesn't work that way either. Like to me, that's not in my own personal way of reading A Song of Ice and Fire and of reading in general. My brain doesn't necessarily like I'm not interested in picking up on all the little that's why reading a song of ice and fire the way that we read it is such a fun and exciting exercise because when you're just sitting through and reading a book once through you're not necessarily going to pick up on all these different side conversations or backstories or characters that pop in and out for 10 minutes who have something really important to lend Mm -hmm. that you may not have paid attention to and so i think that makes this such a fun exercise but um that was part of my point was that I don't know if you have to. I don't know if you really need to in this. I think in other books, maybe because they're introduced for a very specific point. But I don't know if this is what th- this is. I think that other versions of this might be only to build out the world. And I think that he's really just kind of jerking. I think that that's probably true, partially true. And I would rather read it that way but i also think that some things are mentioned in passing for like enjoyment of people who are going to care about it you know who are going to take the time to look into parallels or characters or like you know backstories and things like that i think that without so it's like if you read it and it doesn't mean anything to you then nothing's lost but if you read it and it does mean something to you then you get like this extra level to the sort to the story into the series. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. So, but you look at like you were talking about the wall at the beginning of the chapter and the way that the wall is described after John 
has strikes the deal with Tormund. So good. But then you look at the way the wall's described at the end when he's talking to everybody on the top of the wall, his Night's Watch folks, and how different the wall's described. Um, And all these like little details. And you look at something like that, and to me, that's like a big clue to what the tone of these different conversations or what the tone of other people's feelings or perceptions of the situation. And so I think that... Further evidence. Yeah, like that's pretty cool. That has nothing to do with the character thing, but But (laughs) you were saying it earlier. So It's just that George seems to be aware of the mechanical workings. And I say mechanical because... I think a lot of these things are actually physical and in his world and in our world, it is physical as well. When he's talking about the wall, for example, or even weather or something that we can physically perceive what he seems to be saying. And I don't know if he feels this way about our world, but it's definitely creepy. What he's saying is that it's kind of all in concert. You may not know it, but it's kind of all in concert. And he also might just be saying John's conversation with Tormund went this way ultimately in the end. If you notice the part that we read at the beginning of the chapter, even though Tormund was throwing his mead flag at him multiple times, it was empty and not just because he's a drunkard. All right. I know that that was the way that you could necessarily see it, but it's also because of how he feels about John. And that's part of the reason why he felt that way about the wall. When he saw it, he described the wall. I've been looking at the wall. It's coming up on like 10 years now with all this stuff. I've been looking at it, thinking about it for a really long time. And he described it in a way that I had never seen it before. And it was so, it was just the way it popped off the page and into my mind in a way that I, I, I can't even put a value on it. When I think about the wall not being this hulking mass of um, ominousness, but as this sparkling jewel that they made. And this bright sunlight and that this world's not a bad place and that they might be able to make a real pact with the wildlings that might actually work out. And I don't know, there's, there's hope for that, you know? And I think that the deal that he made with the wildlings was a good deal. I think it was a good plan. I think that it was a really difficult thing for them to argue too. I think that they argued some really good stuff when he was talking to that sort of second tier of his men uh, on top of the wall. I think they made some good points, but I think they had a hard time arguing against John the efficacy of them of of him putting all of those people in those unmanned buildings. Like to me, I could read the quote, but essentially he's sending the wildlings to all the unmanned posts along the wall. People with wives, people with kids. There's some places where single people are going. Some places they're strategizing this. They're trying to in a way. And I'm thinking about the legacy, the generations that might follow, because we are living in a land and a time where they, they think about stuff in spans of hundreds and hundreds of years, traditions that last hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not like now where a lot of us are living in a country that's only a couple hundred years old. So to think about these people these free folk having their kids and their kids growing up in a place where they're not being chased and murdered by these people, but where they're accepted and a part of it. John's pitching a reality that could turn into a really positive thing in a really short amount of time in a considerably short amount of time because there's so few night's watch people at large across the, the entire span of what he's trying to populate that I think it might work. It's a really good plan. 
that's something that they had a really hard time arguing against. It's a really good plan. But, you know, it kind of comes back to the same thing that we always talk about with John, and it continues to ring true in this chapter especially, is this idea is a really good one from a monetary standpoint, from a body count standpoint, from if we're really looking to fight against the real enemy. I mean, it checks all the boxes, but John just has such a hard time truly communicating exactly what's going on and exactly what he's thinking. And I know that as somebody who's in a position of leadership, that you can't always be like 1000% transparent and things are much more nuanced than that. But you look at the conversation that he's having with his, with this Bowen Marsh and Arthur Yarwick and all everybody at the top of the the wall and, and they're bringing up all these decently fair points. I mean, I know that they're biased and that they're bringing prejudice to this conversation and that's a whole other thing, but they are worried about if, if they're going to uphold this oath, if they're just going to eat them out of house and home, if they're going to, you know, blah, 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 do all these different things. And if John could just better articulate, he even says to himself how they're going to bring in their dollar bills and the Night's Watch is going to be able to take their money to repay the bank. But instead, instead of like laying out the logical argument of it, he just continues to try to appeal to their emotion. Yeah. And he's like, well, we're going to, and he says this very beautiful thing and which he, about how wildings are also men and it's his responsibility, it's his responsibility to guard the realms of men. And he's just trying to do what's best for that was like the closer people. And it, I mean, I got chills reading that because it was so well done and beautiful place. But like, if you look at, this conversation and so many other conversations that John has, it's like, why can't you just do a little bit of a better job of like laying out the the logical explanation for what you're trying to do other than just saying it's because it's the right thing to do, you know, then, then people might be a little bit more sympathetic or might be a little bit more interested in trying to make what is a good idea at the end of the day work. But there's thousands of years of prejudice and of fighting and of war and of killing each other and killing each other's families and loved ones between both sides that goes back generations. And so I don't know. There's also still so much starvation and loneliness right now there at the war. And uncertainty. Yeah. I think that this has been the best example of John doing what you just said that he should do so far though. Yeah, he, yes. You know what I mean? The way that he had the tears of communication and also when he was coming back and uh, through the wall and he had to talk to the people that were there at the gate and he knew that he had to, it's not like he couldn't say what he was thinking. He He's now the Lord commander. So it's not just that you're at a place and you can depend on it to run itself. Like you can get up anytime you want and there's going to be people out there cleaning this thing or scrubbing this thing. It's legitimately all on your shoulders. So he's coming back from this parlay and he's having to break bad news essentially to people, but not in his preferred way. The news is going to spread no matter what. And I think it's really difficult. I can't imagine being in that position where Absolutely. there's so many lives at stake, but also that it, there's there's not modernness. There's not hospitals. There's not helicopters. There's not even motor vehicles. We're talking about it's bad and it's getting worse. And we think that magical ice zombies might be coming. Nay, we know they're coming. 
So I, I don't, I don't really know what he's supposed to do with the pressure other than, I guess, take that pressure that you're, or take the pressure and do what you're describing. I don't know if it's a fallacy of, of John's because of his youth or if it's yet to be revealed why George R. R. Martin thinks that this is the kind of person that he ultimately is. I'm trying to think about if there were any really big holes in his upbringing in Winterfell potentially where a lot of things were left unsaid, like potentially think about how, think about how he was treated by who he thought was his dad and never telling him a thing about his mom. I guess it's just kind of like a, a stalwart manly thing to do. The men of the North, they just kind of keep them feeling their feelings and their thoughts inner inner monologue to themselves. But I feel like John was kind of keeping some things from Marcel or keeping some stuff from me when I was reading <laughs> this chapter two, whenever he started to talk about Arya, I was like, wait a second, are you this emotional about Arya too? I think he's just trying to appease. I think he's just trying to appeal to everyone, you know, and he just wants everyone to be good. He wants everyone to feel comfortable. He wants everybody to be taken care of. And I, I think that sometimes, in order to do that, you have to ruffle feathers. And he's doing his best to navigate something that he doesn't like doing. So do you think that the lack of information, the lack of sort of leveling with these guys in a way that makes them feel totally connected and with his point of view is because or is on purpose and rather than a, a personal failing of his character? Um, I don't know. That's a good question, because like I said, I think that as a, a leader, he can't play all of his put like show all of his cards you know he can't just put it all out there but i just feel like he doesn't i just feel like he often tries to play to emotion and plead to the emotional side rather than talk through all the reasons why this is actually going to be good you know and and why can't he just make like a powerpoint presentation yeah, just like make a presentation with all the bullet points of how this is going to be helpful and then deal with the prejudice and all of that kind of stuff that's going to come come after. And so, you know, he is in a very unique position because he's somebody who has deep ties to both sides. And so he can deeply sympathize with both sides of the aisle because he he knows who the wildlings are, you know, and he knows how they think and he's tormented somebody that he's spent time with. And he also knows the night's watch because those are his people and he lives among them. And he's, and, and so I do think that they're like, it takes a certain brand of maturity and not necessarily like a personal failing to even try to navigate these conversations at all. I'm not saying that even somebody could necessarily do a better job. I'm just saying if Jon Snow was going to be doing the perfect job and if he wanted to save his head then maybe he should have appealed a little bit more to the logical side than to the emotional side but he too i mean his inner log inner mono inner log inner monologue i like that <laughs> throughout this chapter is also kind of like trying to appeal to himself of let me know that i did the right thing and so you know and also it's complicated asking almost it seems the universe or the gods for equality and like a division of labor. He says, you know, I let him free. I sent you this way. Please bring Arya back. I forget what the exact quote is, but he was basically saying, I deserve that. Or like I'm owed that or something that 
You tweeted it. You should know. Yeah, I did. It. Let me see. <laughs> Bring her home, Mance. I saved your son from Melisandre, and now I'm about to save 4,000 of your free folk. You owe me this one little girl. I see. I see. So how much do you think this really matters? His appeal to the, I don't know, the equality. That's not what I'm looking for. The harmony of the universe. How much do you think it matters? Honestly, there's so many different kinds of people in Westeros. There's so many people that are not like he and Tormund. I know that Tormund was throwing stuff at him and they were yelling, but what John did was allowed it to rain on him kept his patience with someone that he liked and respected. Literally also, allowed you it can, to rain on him. Literally. And you can do this with anyone, but it's probably a little bit easier to do with Torment. And maybe you wouldn't want to do this with everyone, but you really need to do it with Torment. And a good thing happened. He had, like I said, the best day. I found, personally, found a, a new understanding of the wall. And I've read this before. So all good stuff. But he's about to get stabbed in a few chapters. And betrayed by all these people that don't have a better plan. They just simply don't have a better plan. Mm -hmm. All these wildlings, no better plan. What do we do? There are people like Cersei. There's people like Val where it seems like she's on the same page as us, but we find out that she's a little bit cruel in the end. Is she? I don't know. Maybe. What about all those people who aren't like John and Torment? What about people like Selyse? Who, or... who are, whenever she sees Val and knows the situation, she's just rude because she can yeah. be. She's like, oh, yeah, you're the hot wilding princess. I'm going to pretend like you're not in here for the first 35 seconds right. and then go on to talk like this. What, where do people, where do all those people fit in when things get really serious? When mm -hmm. it's not just where people like John and Tormund are like checking their watch and taking their time and going, mm -hmm. okay, I know that I have to, like you said, Hannah, be logical about this. John's taking your advice at this point. He's like tapping his watch. Okay, I got to be super logical and spell everything out in a way where all these people won't stab me. Wh what happens when the White Walkers cross the wall to all those people? I mean, where's the equality? So the equality in the universe, or at least in, in Planetos, that John's reaching out for doesn't seem to be a thing unless he really gets Daenerys in the end and nothing bad happens. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the same, speaking of Daenerys, that's the same exact issue that she's dealing with and that we talked about, you know, and this idea to try to bring everybody together in harmony to fight this common enemy is such a broad theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's like, at this point in the story, we don't see it work for Daenerys, for John, We don't see a solution that is something that is uh, breaking the wheel, different than the way we've always done it, you know? Um, and so we haven't seen anything like that work yet. And so the hope, I think, is that come the real threat that people are able to put aside their differences and all fight for common humanity and blah, blah, blah. I don't know what to, I, don't, I mean, a cliche way to talk about it, but I'm worried about it. Absolutely. You look at those different types of personalities and, and we see the show trying to kind of highlight some of those struggles that I think we're going to potentially see in scenes with like, Danny and Sansa getting mad at each other and like Arya and Sansa like having fake weird fights while trying to also kill Baelish like you have to see everything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I think that those All are like options at once. <laughs> I think those are really like dumbed down versions of these very deep internal struggles where people are going to have to. I mean, look, Tormund, he's talking about like his sons dying and how much that's changed his pers- perspective. And you look at somebody like Bowen Marsh who like is the kind of person that he is, but he's been at the wall forever and you turn around and say the people that you've been actively fighting against are actually you're supposed to like let them into your home and to your hearth and the to weeper. rely on them yeah john kind of went a little bit far with that one i will say yeah just don't let that guy through right. or or the second he comes through just you know put him in a, a cage or something i don't know right. i don't like the idea of putting people in a cage maybe sell him no you can't sell him either Ah, just send them away. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's I don't tough. Know. It's hard. And so that's, um, you know, it's, too much. I, uh, I understand and we can obviously sympathize with the night's watch. I mean, absolutely. They're stressed out of their mind and you have to like, let your enemy into your home. But I like the way you just put it though. What were you going to say? I was just say what yours like. Hopefully it works. It works out. I like the uh, thinking about Bowen Marsh as seeing it in a much more simple way because he doesn't have to. And that's kind of what I was questioning. I'm not saying that these different perspectives are bad or are any less than someone in the position of John or Tormund. Those guys do messed up stuff on their own, on their own count, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all, I don't know, some kind of relative in the end. But maybe it isn't because there's people like the Weeper that throw off the entire balance of everything. So I really don't know what I'm saying, but. George is trying to put it together in a way that makes sense. And I appreciate that. It's fun to kind of dissect it and look at it in a way that might apply to how nature works because it's what not only what the author is doing, but how things actually go. And so if he's following that path, it might be an easier way to sort of discover what's happening next or to sort of like look and read further into stuff that didn't make the page because I bet there's like 14 more paragraphs of contextual evidence that he could have put in here that maybe he cut or that his editor cut. Right. And none of us could have done a better job in managing any of these conversations, but you know, here we are. I feel like it's a good thing I'm not in, that, in any of those positions because if I saw <laughs> Salise acting that way, I don't know if I would be the same level of patient just to make the thing happen. She's just so mean. Yeah, but she's mean all the time no matter what. You know what I mean? Like it's not like this was a special case of her being mean. Like she's always has that way about her. What is she still doing there too? You know? Like why she is she still – She wanted to not be at Eastwatch. But I thought she was like so amped on this idea that she's, I don't know. I just, Salise. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mel Sandra's there. That's all she needs. That's true. Nightly That's true. night fires, honestly. Not much else is going on in Westeros. I don't know if that would be welcome in many places right now. It's just kind of weird. It was really funny how when they're going off to see her. Val's like, I have heard it said your queen has a great dark beard. John Yeesh. did not smile, but he did. Only a mustache, very wispy. You can count the hairs. Why that is that a thing? I don't understand why that's a thing. It seems strange. It's like <laughs> messed up. I just thought it was funny. What do you think about the what do you think about the conversation that John has with her about them not dealing with Stannis and not converting to their religion? Like, I mean, what is Celise's just like whole thing? Her whole thing is I 
am jealous of this person. I don't really know what I'm doing or what's going on. And the rapport that she has with my daughter threatens me. And I'm a princess too. Yeah. And uh, what was your question? Oh, what was it? What was that exchange about? Uh, and John said mathematically what he was supposed to say. He said that wasn't our agreement. It's kind of hard to argue against that. Obviously she can deduce that he just spent a lot of time working on this because that's kind of what she discovers as she's asking him questions. He has all the right things prepared to say about the division of labor, who's going where, what's going what. And it seems to be that the importance of Roller and the importance of kneeling to Stannis is kind of an afterthought to her. And it's really just a kind of a compliance issue where she's like, oh, yeah, this is all happening. But keep in mind, we're the actual ones in charge. Comply to us. Meanwhile, someone like Val this whole entire time, it's one of the reasons why she was like, can I laugh when I'm kneeling to her? I totally understand where she's coming from. She's saying that, you know, this is a person, right, that we're going to go meet. Just a person that has a beard. So what do you think about that, John? Or doesn't. (laughs) But she's saying, she's trying to point out the hypocrisy in all of the odd regulations and us needing to kneel and being so worried. Val's like, I've never known a queen that so many people or that men would lose their legs around. Right. I do think, though, that just to back up a little bit before they go see Celise, I mean... Val, Val's desire to help in any way she can, even if she has to kind of have this conversation. She kind of is a little, she's like, you have my word, Snow. I'll be a proper princess for your queen. Um, and John's like, well, I can't wait for Celise to get the heck out of here and hopefully take Melisandre so I can like leave this part of, this part of trouble will be like at least out of my purview for a minute. But, you know, Val is, willing to kind of step up and help in any way she can, whether she actually helps or not in having a conversation with Celise is um, to be determined, especially with the whole grayscale conversation that she and John have after. But I don't know. I think it's great that she's like trying as whereas somebody like Celise is trying 0%, you know? Yeah. Well, Celise doesn't have to try. The thing is, Val has, she has stakes. There's a little monster. There's everyone that she knows. There's just the overall status of her socially, her life as it continues. It's a weird place to be in with all of this happening. And I feel like a reminder needs to be placed over the entire conversation that a lot of these people know that the White Walkers are advancing and that this whole thing is a product of the White Walkers advancing. Tormund and all the wildlings passing the wall, Mance wanting to pass the wall originally in the first place. All these people are not just super excited to go live in Westeros. That's right. not really what's happening. That's not here. what they want. But even John's story within this, John is a player within the larger story of Westeros unfolding. All the different emotions that he's feeling and the way he has to handle his men. This is all happening because the White Walkers, for some reason, and hopefully we find out why, are wanting to advance on humans and cross some magical wall that was built to stop them a long time ago. And we're all getting caught up in that bullshit. <laughs> or not getting caught up in it. AKA half of the world right now. Yeah. Well, not unless we're forced into it. So Val is, and like John and Tormund, like we were saying earlier, people that are are 
volunteering, some people volunteering, some people getting forced, like the wildlings kind of were forced to start acting on this while there's time to act with a little bit of of time in your favor rather than at the last second because we're being attacked. Queen Celeste doesn't have to do that. She's not happy really with anything. So yeah. whatever happens, happens. Plus she doesn't seems like believe in much outside of what Melisandre says. And if Melisandre is not freaked out, then I don't think we're going to see her desperately act yet. But thinking about how those people will behave when the chips start to fall is kind of unsettling. Think about Jono Slint sneaking around the wall, hiding. Right. Who knows? Well, you hope that somebody like Celise is far off by the time that that the wall comes tumbling <sighs> it's down. It's just because... creepy, you know? Yeah. It's creepy. It's cringy. I don't... You don't want to be that. You don't want to be in that position ever, ever. So it makes me feel... I mean, so, you know, it does make me feel bad because John is dealing with a lot of different, wildly different opposite personalities with different needs and different goals and different hopes and dreams and all that kind of thing. I mean, he is kind of balancing a lot of personalities through all of this. Oh, for sure. So he's just out here doing his best, but he's out here doing his best. And I think that there's been a lot of momentum directed in his way about hooking up with Val. And yeah, I totally get it now. I feel like I got it before always because of obvious reasons. But when she walked out of the woods with Ghost and it was like, they it looked look like they, be- they belong together. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Can you continue what you were saying, George R. R. Martin? He's like, I got you. And he goes on to describe her as a, uh, John sees her as a kind of a warrior princess, but she's, a hundred percent wife material, not because of that, but because she set out with the same Garen that she returned with and managed to get Tormund and all the wildlings to come back. I mean, come on. And on top of that, it had been a long while since Jon Snow had seen a sight yeah. so lovely. <laughs> I think she's a stunner. What do you think that means? If we're going to take anything like the John and Daenerys storyline, what do you think that... How do you think that could play in? Or do you think that like a John and Val thing is something that might actually come to fruition? Like, what do you see about where they're going to go? Because like you said, there's obviously like a lot there. I think that John was nibbling on the bait for a while until the end of the chapter, whenever she was talking about Shireen. And grayscale and saying that she was walking death and that she should be killed and saying like, I don't want to stay in the same tower and I want the baby moved and I want to leave. She was just kind of acting in a way that reflected how upset she was about the conversation, but also in a serious way talking about potentially, I'm not sure how serious it was, how scared she was of Shireen's grayscale. And I think in general, he was just turned off by it. <laughs> he was just like, nah, you know what? I, on second thought, <laughs> you're rolling your eyes right now. Why? Only because <laughs> <laughs> she's like one and done. She's out the door. She like makes one wrong move. That's pretty but, much his whole thing, it seems. 
It's interesting to me. Oh, I, I'm just wanted to ask you too. That's another thing that I want to ask you is kind of the deal that she makes about the grayscale. <laughs> and if she, what's wrong with John seeing her say like, let's kill that baby or well, let's kill what Shireen. I'm, what's wrong with him thinking that that's too much? You're like, Oh, so just she makes one mistake. Like what, <laughs> what if he's like, you know what? I don't really vibe with the way you think. Like, isn't that fair too? (laughs) That's a thousand percent fair. This is what I'm trying to ask you is. (laughs) I think it's fair. What I'm trying to ask you is the whole grayscale thing. Like, do you think that there's any credence to Val's fear? And I know that she, especially with somebody like Shireen, who we're going to defend to the death and somebody like who has apparently she's been cleared. She's good. She doesn't, it's, it's, dormant and so shireen's somebody that we're going to feel sympathetic for no matter what so obviously val coming for her is like upsetting but do you think that there's any credence to her fear of how she feels about grayscale or if we think maybe we should adopt a similar attitude if you know i don't think it's I'm asking you a very pointed question without trying to ask you a pointed question. That's you can just really ask, do you think they should wear a face mask in Westeros? No, <laughs> no, that's not I, what I'm asking is like grayscale, obviously to me continues to play a role in the story in a way that we might not understand. And to me, Val being upset about it is more of, a nod to maybe we should not necessarily look at Shireen's grayscale as like something to be afraid of, but if there's some other lore that Val knows that we don't from her time on the other side of the wall that can help us better understand like what this could potentially do. I think it it comes back to, is it a product of George just writing it because Shireen was in the room? Like the stuff we were talking about before, where it's just more details to enrich the world and the story that we're in, or it was a time when he was dropping something and making it a part of the right. chapter with description and context that might actually come up later. If it's that, I think that it is very possible that it's not completely dormant. I mean, who said that it was dormant? We know the guy who's in charge of this whole wall right now, and he's just John. So who was in charge of saying that dormant thing was dormant? I don't know about those people. I don't know about how much they know about grayscale. I don't know that. It was a maester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a <laughs> lot of maesters in this story that do a lot of weird shit. That's true. You know? So I don't really know. So I think it is possible. I don't know how likely it is to happen. But I don't know the way she described it as a as it being like in a, a moment of stasis and having just been frozen Stannis describes to them as looking for a million different cures i can't remember what they found to make it stop or if they i'm assuming that they blamed it on whatever treatment they were finding it could have stopped naturally who knows i'm not even going to quote the tv show <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> i don't even want to mention the tv show i don't know i just um what do you think I do, well i like i I do think that, like I was saying when I was asking the question, especially when it comes to somebody like Shireen, the thought of her like being taken away or dying or anything happening to her is a very stressful thought. And so I'm never going to Because gonna, she's like, nice. Right. Yeah, because she's nice. And she's like just out here doing her best, like teaching dogs to read, you know? And so I love her. So does everybody. Anyway, but I don't know. I felt like Val maybe saying that is 
a tip for us to be like, okay, maybe grayscale if we're, as we're talking about greater threats, like potentially grayscale can come back and come Just into to make play it worse. Like the, in a the way. killer bees. Well, yeah, like, hornets. yeah. Like there's a, like, there's something else like this isn't that the, her fear is legitimate for something like grayscale. That just kind of made me think that if it isn't, then people are going to be annoyed because they're going to be like, all right, how many times do I have to read about random new guy? And then there's no fruition. And then you're going to have her be super weird about grayscale. And then Val just dies like two chapters into wins. And then there's no grayscale thing ever to happen. If that kind of thing happens, maybe, but if it all comes back around, then I think that will be satisfied by it. And if it adds to the complexity of the story, them dealing with some kind of a, a plague that is so seemingly irreversible, I don't want bad stuff to happen to our characters, but for people that make this stuff as art, they seem to get the most satisfaction out of their people whenever they put people to the most weird and horrible stuff, you know? So uh, grayscale being a thing when the White Walkers are attacking might be a thing, you know, while John is meeting Danny, that might right. be a thing. Maybe. I don't know if Val's going to be around for it, but I don't think that she seems really cooked enough for John right now. He's like, you know what? I'm Lord Commander of the Night's Watch right now, and you seem to not have your shit together. He also like, doesn't have time for that kind of thing. Right That's what now. I'm saying. You know? Yeah. Like, he's got so many other millions of things on his mind that, you know, but I... She's cool just, though, man. She's, she's super cool, cool, and I like her attitude a lot. I like her. I kind of fell in love with her a little bit in this chapter. I was, I was like, gonna say, wait a second, <laughs> hold on. And just the whole thing about ghosts with her—that you know, you can't you, George R. R. Martin can't write that ghosts and Val belong to each other, and then as that like a throwaway comment about the fact that they when they're standing together, it looks cool. You know what I mean? Like, right. ghost is too important to John's character to right. like use that as like a cool imagery thing. But that's why I think it's such a cool juxtaposition with all of the mythical things that are happening because at the same time those things can be true about Val but also the person that she is can not be perfectly in sync to the level that John wants to interact with on a regular basis just Mm -hmm. simply put or anyone else too. I don't know why this has to be just about matchmaking with John but that seems to be where everyone's headed and like you said it was sort of keenly set up with that exchange about ghosts and I, I I took the bait too. I thought it was cool not because she was some hot girl with a crazy wolf, but just because she was the kind of person that was willing to be in tune with her surroundings and not be short-sighted. And, and I don't she has think a that strong that's, hand. That too. Know? Yeah. The strong so. hand enough to, to at least attract ghosts respect. I don't know if she's necessarily bossing them around. I don't know how that works. We haven't got a lot of insight into how Melisandre or Val or other people that do well with ghosts necessarily interact with them. But John seems to have on, on like a command sort of thing. We didn't, we didn't see any of that training process with him. They just sort of did that. They kind your of have dream, that. Your dream chapter is like John just working with ghosts to like try to train him better. It's like, it's like George is like, and ghost ran to the, yeah. know, the battlements and, but didn't pick up the stick. I mean, and it's like, uh, it goes like gods or like curses and, and John's these are italics the are like, John's this used. wolf will never listen. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, Oh, you could hope and dream for in as long as I can't wait for the ghost point of view chapters in the winds of winter. (laughs) Oh my living God. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the deal is with ghosts right now? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he was absent a couple times and he appeared with Val and then he was gone later in the chapter. 
And then we know all the the theories about John warging before he stabbed or after he stabbed right. might come into play. Not sure. Do you think that there's any potential weirdness? Like George is trying to elevate the ghostiness right now when something weird with magic and death might happen and warging. Did you pick oh, up on like, any of that? Like ghost is present when some stuff is happening. Is that what you're trying to say? Sure. I, I just really just talking about him putting ghosts in such a forefront in general. I, I picked up on him mentioning that ghost was, was not around again for a second mm-hmm. time in this chapter. And I felt like, again, that was a, a detail we didn't necessarily need unless we yeah. thought that there was something there. I don't have an idea. I think that I don't, I think that maybe it's just more ghosts because there might be something with the warging later. I know our last John chapter, which was a couple of weeks ago was, or a couple episodes ago was, uh, Bellisander warned John to keep ghosts nearby. And mm-hmm. then again, in this chapter, he's gone hanging out with Val and then, Maybe he's hanging out with Mormont's Raven. Otherwise, I think that that's what's going on, right. by the way. I think that Mormont's that Raven and Ghost are with. hanging out. <laughs> They're just like, Ghost is just learning about whatever the heck that Blood He's chirping. He's like, say. corn, corn. And Ghost is just like, hmm, silent and listening. And right. the birds well, he's just, like spying on everything that's happening at Castle Black. He's like flying on a tree branch and Ghost goes over and pees on that tree and he flies on another tree branch. <laughs> ghost goes over and pees on that tree. They're both Ugh. like these deeply magical creatures and they're just acting like animals. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, from in like a very broad sense, I'm a fan of the idea of John warging into Ghost for a time being when he's killed. I definitely like that theory and I like that idea and I feel like there's a precedent for that a little bit. So I think that that would be a cool thing to happen. As I was reading the chapter, I was not picking up on when ghosts came in and out of frame necessarily. So I haven't really given it much thought. Well, it shows. Yeah, it does show. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) whatever you wanted to say about it, go for it because... I think I said all of it. I think that that, like, the Melisandre comment is a good thing to, like, keep in the back of my mind as I do continue to read these chapters because I had forgotten that she had said that. So do you think that since John is seeing these things in Val, that it might be a sort of natural precursor? You were mentioning this before to Daenerys. Well, I was just wondering if. Like, John is going to end up with Valor Daenerys, like, in some... Just in general. In general. I mean, I think that it just made me think about what John and Daenerys' relationship could or might or might not look like. And if when they saw each other, there was some of that same draw or banter or, like chemistry and respect that I feel like we see between John and Val here and if how that works out, you know? John's just so pointedly picking up on things that we can translate to the same sort of archetypal person as Daenerys. I think her and Val are very similar in those ways. And I'm curious if John will, let's say we have similar progression, but it's more patient and expanded over more chapters. I'd love to see this from two perspectives. I don't think we've ever had that from two POV characters. That would be really interesting. Mm -hmm. But 
it's possible the same sort of respect, but on another tier on both levels. Maybe she's finding more in him than she's found in anyone else. He's finding more in her than even how cool Val seems coming out of the forest with Ghost. Maybe she's just casually hanging out with three dragons and he's just like, what is this? Right. I, need to, I need to understand this. Do you think that's possible that like with Val here and even more, again, elevated version, just like everything else happens where he witnesses or hears of or discusses this level of cruelty to him, to, to Val, it's, I'm just being protective of myself. This is just how we do it. But to him, he kind of sees those things where you're not sacrificing yourself for the good of everyone as a sort of cruelty for better or for worse. Do you think that it's possible we might even see a more extreme version of that with Daenerys that makes him turn his back on her in a way that is really unsatisfying because of all of the good that they just shared? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it won't happen. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that... I think that the thing that's going to draw John and Daenerys to each other more than anything is going to be their common experience. They've had a very deeply shared experience while happening on completely different continents. And so I feel like their struggles and what they've learned along the way and kind of their idealistic points of view are things that are going to draw them together almost more so than anything else. And so if we talk about like down the road, what could potentially take them apart if we're going to go the way the show went. I don't know. Like their John's idealistic values are going to continue to play to to him and he's going to continue to kind of follow those same threads. But I think that almost more so than Val walking out of the woods with ghost by his side, by her side and John seeing them belong together. I think that the thing that's going to draw him to Daenerys is going to be that they want the same things or fighting for the same ideals. And I think and these that's are just be. extra details that make it nice is what he was noticing. Mm-hmm. But it's really about that through line that really holds them together for him potentially. I think so. I would, that's what I would say. So I'm trying not to think about how the show handles it. I'm trying to think about Val as a sort of a baby version precursor to the kind of woman that Daenerys is. If that's a thing. Or and, Val yeah. being a, um, what's her name? Two point Egret. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe I there's that too. Of her being a Egret two But finish with that. Sorry. That's really it. I I hate to say that Daenerys is like a an evolved version of Val, but for the sake of the story, that might be the case. To me, Daenerys is so much younger and and not experienced, but she's had a lot more power at her hands. And so maybe in that way, she'll relate more to John if that, Mm -hmm. if that becomes a thing, but it'll be interesting to see that it unfolds, but just reading the evidence of how it, or rather reading the, the details and trying to come up with my own evidence and how I feel this chapter is very revealing about how he might think about someone that still is, he loves how, open she is about what they're doing because that's that's how he sees it too because he started at the bottom there he started legitimately at the bottom there so there's not a lot of he's not impressed by anything that's happening and neither is she and that really you know is a puts them on a, a common footing and i think that he likes 
kind of how mean she's being too, because he wishes he could be that way at the same time. <laughs> but the way that maybe the way that it turned out in the end, I think is sort of revealing. And I hate to, I hate to see him in that same position with Daenerys where it's like, they've been, imagine a stream of victories. If, mm-hmm. if that, if that's a thing for a while, and then maybe a common person that they know or something dangerous happens. And then to her, it's, this is an obvious thing that we should do. We should do obviously this thing. And then to him, it's like, I'm going to approve it, but I know now that my love for you is dead, that I can no longer feel for you the way that I thought I felt for you because of this thing. And it could happen vice versa, but it just seems that John's the kind of person to not be able to let go of that. We see this, that. I know you're trying thing. not to talk about the show, but we see that in the show. Do we, though? I mean, Honestly, it was done It seems por- like Tyrion poorly. just convinced him to do it. It didn't seem like that was John's decision at all. That's fair. That's fair. That's me like reading between the lines of what I think it would look like. So I think it's much more interesting if or, it's John's decision, just like where he, where he, where he knows that there's no other way that this is how I feel. Kind of like he is here doing through all of this that he's dealing with the wildlings coming through the wall. Like this is his decision. Ugh, he knows in death. He knows that it's real. Well, yeah, he knows that this is the only way. The problem is there's so many other people. There's just, you can't just, and they, they don't just listen and that they can retaliate. That's the problem. If only he could just tell everyone to do everything that he wants to do, then maybe they'd have a better chance of surviving. But I don't think he knows everything to do. Right he doesn't. Now, he doesn't. He's just like doing his best. Yeah. Um, maybe what I was thinking of is John and Daenerys will play out and then instead of John and Tormund going beyond the wall at the end, John and Val will go beyond the wall at the end and live out their great wilding dreams, ranging (laughs) their lives away. Okay. That's all. That's the scenario. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about. But John's like intrinsic value of him trying to do the right thing is A, going to be the thing that, like I was saying, draws him to Daenerys, and B, is going to be the thing that's going to be their undoing. Hmm. I wonder if there's any way to avoid that. Can you actually be driven by the right thing and then to also be able to be strategic about it at the same time? I don't know. Isn't that, that might, what Ned tried to do in King's Landing? That might be like a big <laughs> lesson to learn in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? So You can't, I can, you can't have depends. both. You, you can't have be to, a good guy and win. At the yeah. same time. Yeesh. But maybe you can. That's why they're trying to reinvent democracy with Bran. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Do you think if the world ends or if it doesn't end and the White Walkers don't come for a while, maybe they get distracted mm-hmm. and they let a lot of people, they let a lot of people through the wall that people like the Weeper would just keep going south anyway and cause a lot of trouble and just start serially raping people. Probably. Honestly, that guy didn't make the treaty with John. Tormund did. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's going to be rogue people. That's a that's a valid fear. If uh, sh- the White Walkers do attack, do you think that they're those those free folk, those same style people, are going to help? Or do you think they're going to run? I think they'll help because it's a common enemy. You know, they're finally going to be fighting against the same thing and the same ideal they're already running and so this is their opportunity and their one chance to stand up and fight because if they continue to run it's only going to catch up to them eventually and so they might as well put all their resources behind That's their decently good chance so perfect about 
these planets that we live on. You try to avoid the White Walkers, you meet basilisks. You keep heading south, you know what I mean? Like you're you're going to be screwed one way or the other. Mhm. Oh, yeah. Wildfire, bad people, dragons, grayscale, stone men being drowned at the bottom of the ocean with patch face, all those different kinds of things. I was thinking maybe the under the sea means after all the snow has fallen and winter has come. He's always describing these crazy post-apocalyptic scenes. Hmm. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe. It's definitely like not a good thing, you know? So it's like. <laughs> well, cause there's moisture then. It's white. It's made of water. So it's like under so the, the snow the instead of under yeah. the sea. It covers everything. And, um, maybe he has access to it because of some kind of trauma or because of, I don't know. Maybe it's all connected. So if it's all connected, we know that, uh, that it's so ice centric for some reason. This, this sort of green technology that he's talking about. But what about like, um, the drowned god or any of that stuff, you know? To I think me, that, that it's an uh, indicator that he's talking about the sea and it is in concert with the ground, drowned god, but I don't know. Maybe it's not so obvious. He's talking about all the crows being white under the sea. And I just don't think it's very likely I'm going to be able to see a bunch of white stuff all, all the way under the water very clearly. But I'm imagining Patchface in his mind's eye seeing a bunch of Night's Watch people turned into whites. Interesting. I don't know. That's an idea. I think if he's seeing something, that it's more likely that he's seeing something that's actually going to happen. And he's not just speaking in parables all the time. Right. I don't know. Or he truly just has gone mad and just yeah. isn't saying anything, you know? <laughs> it's, it's hard just to a say. product of more world building. Like, isn't right, this fool we crazy? <laughs> <laughs> you were saying earlier. So. Um, okay, another question. Do you think that John really cares about his family? Yes. Why? Well, you look at John's motivation we read that quote that he thinks about Arya. You look at the things that are motivating John, and to me, when I read that about Arya, what's at the center of his heart and the center of who he is is his family. And so let me find that because I want to, there's a couple other sentences that I wanted to include into that. And I think we've talked about this. We talked about this with Theon a lot in the last episode. People's motivation and their sense of who they are, regardless of what they've promised or who they've become or the situation they've been in, is the kind of thing that's going to keep them alive. And so to me, I think like Arya has become that thing for John. I wow. can't find it. Is that the beginning of the chapter or near the end? Hmm. I think I wrote it down. Hold on. Did he ever find you, little sister? It has been so long since he last seen Arya. What would she look like now? And he kind of goes on to think about what she would look like. But, you know, we see throughout this chapter him talking about his oath as a man of the Night's Watch and his duty to help other people and to guard the realms of men. But when he's just dealing with his internal dialogue instead of trying to appeal to somebody else, the thing that is the motivator to do what he did is Arya and not the Night's Watch oath, like he says out loud. So that's why I think that 
that is a true and genuine feeling that he has, even if he can't recognize her anymore. And she, it's funny because she does not need his sympathy or saving or any of that kind of thing. And so his view of her. But if she knew how truly, as you say, if, if you're right, if she knew how truly motivated by the memory of the love that he and his family share, then, I mean, she'd be like, all right, I'm taking off this faceless man shit right now. Yeah, but I'd argue already that she already does have that feeling and motivation. And she often thinks of John and she often thinks of her experiences at Winterfell. And so I think that just a reminder would be nice, you know, like send a raven. Yeah. Like to know that that's real. But I mean, I think too, that that's a motivating factor for her, even if they can't together sympathize or together express that we see that time and time again. So it becomes about what it really is and not about what you're aware of what's available to you because they don't know of what's available to them. It's just an old memory. It's just like what's deep in their heart. Like what's yeah. at the true center of themselves and at the true center of, and we saw with John and his debate of sending Vance down to save Arya. And if he should go say, you know, mm-hmm. that's always going to come first for him at the end of the day, even if he is a man of the night's watch. And that's the whole conversation that he had with Maester or whatever, you know, of like, he was like, I too duty and family and all that kind of stuff. I too struggle with the same Mr. things. Amen. Mr. Raymond, I can't remember anybody's name. Mr. Whatever's awesome. That's awesome. That's truly, truly awesome. Because it's just a nondescript mace. They're always creeping around saying random things. What can I say? I'm a fake fan. That's funny. um, Anyway, we see that time and time again with John. It's like. That is a good point. So, what do you think? It's hard for me to. to, It was just difficult for me to see it that way. How so? But it makes so much more sense to me. Because I'm thinking about. What you just said, why didn't he, if I thought that Arya was in Winterfell, I would probably go to Winterfell. Because he can't, like he made a, he took a vow, you know, you you say that, but you know, I'm, I'm saying that I probably still would and that's not very smart, but, and it might get me killed faster than what he's doing would get himself killed. But if you really, it'd be a hard thing to do to know that your little sister was with Ramsey Bolton. That'd be hard. I might do something stupid in that case. And so it makes me think, you know, this is something that he's thinking about, but he's also thinking about so many other things. He's strategizing. He's thinking about how beautiful the wall is. I'd have a hard time thinking about the beauty of the wall if that was going on, if I knew that that was going on. And right. it seems like he really thinks that that's what's going on. So it made me think. I mean, I understand that he's caught up in the momentum of everything. And, and it's that, his duty. Like, his, his job as the Lord. He's not just a guy in the Night's Watch. No, you're you right. know? He's not just like a rando. He's... He's the guy in the Night's Watch. This is a uh, something that he said to Val, and I was really on her vibe. And then he says this, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. She asks if she can laugh while she kneels to Queen Silly's. He says, you may not. This is no game. I'm going to read it really seriously. A river of blood runs between our peoples, old and deep and red. Stannis Baratheon is one of the few favors admitting wildlings to the realms. I need his queen's support for what I've done. So, yeah, I know it's people, and I know a lot of them aren't even paying attention. (laughs) But we have to take them seriously, is what he's saying. And that's the same reason why he doesn't go save Arya, it seems. And for good reason, because of 
It's not even Arya in the first place. Who Poor says, Love Bull. is the death of duty. Maester something. <laughs> Maester, Maester whatever. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> That's just crazy. I just forgot for a second. There's so many names. There's so many people. That's like, the whole thing. That's can you the, believe? the entire thing. That's the most cliche thing to say about A Song of Ice and Fire. But here we are. What do you think it is about John that the old school Blood of the North just can't get along with? And really just all the guys that are questioning his choices at the Night's Watch. What do you think it is they can't get along with? I'm What I'm trying to ask more specifically is those guys, the kind of people that are the sort of stuff of what's behind Winterfell. They've got experience in their lineage with people dealing with the kings of winter and coming back less ahead when things went wrong. And I feel like they they sort of fancy themselves as the kind of people not to be trifled with and that would only get involved when they have to, like when they did, when they assisted Stannis at Deepwood Mott and now seeing this marriage between the Magnar of Thin and Alice Carr Stark is the only reason why this is happening. He's going up on the wall meeting him in this epic fashion. And I feel like these are people that Ned Stark would have revered. And, but he's the Lord Commander now, and he's, they see him most importantly. He sees them. They see him. I don't know the kind of perspective they would have compared to his because I'm not like them in any way. <laughs> and I can only imagine that it is, they're seeing him as like a person they can not only best physically, but mentally. I'm just wondering because I'm not, I don't have that perspective. What do you think it is about John that these people who were described in the manner that I couldn't necessarily quote, but I think you understand the vibe of what is it about them that doesn't connect that they think it's okay to not take him seriously or to start rather planning other stuff while this is happening, which I well, think is the most crucial thing because that's really what, makes all this happen. John's trying to make something specific happen, but there's a whole other plan. I think that John is very unlikable to Randos. And I think he always been, has been since the beginning, because you look at even the way that he got elected as Lord commander from even he was doomed from that moment being elected as Lord commander. And he says at the beginning of the, um, chapter and I wanted to make this my own but I'm going to read it now when he's talking to Tormund Tormund says Mance should have killed you when he had the chance he said and he did his best to turn John's hand to pulp and bone gold for gruel and boys a cruel price whatever happened to the sweet lad I knew and then John thinks they made him lord commander and so I think that John already was kind of an unlikable guy and then the way in which he was elected only added fuel to the fire and then he is doing this extremely controversial thing. And I can see John's vibe just. John can be very impatient and dismissive. And I think John doesn't always, as we've been saying, he. You pointed out correctly that in this chapter, John is doing a much better job than I think he typically does to try to explain what's happening and trying to appeal to all these different people. But that's not his strong suit. And so as an outsider who is only seeing somebody get elected who's young and who is annoying. In a time of crisis. Yeah, it's a time of crisis. And he's arrogant and he is like one of those... 
Who me? Like, I don't know. I don't know how to, you know what I'm trying to, you guys know who John Snow is. I don't need to describe him to you, but I think that that just creates a very unlikable environment. And so once you get deeper into a time of crisis, when they're worried about how they're going to get food on the table and how they're going to freeze to death and how these enemies are coming towards them, John then opens up the gate in a very controversial way. And so while I don't necessarily agree with them, and I think it's easier for us to side with John because we understand both pieces of the puzzle and we also aren't like struggling to keep warm at night necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, John is just kind of like unlikable. And so I can see it. And he's cutting his teeth on this. He's making leadership mistakes during this time. When I, when I said I felt like he was doing better, I don't think it was necessarily because the subject was so serious. I think it's because he's got more practice. Yeah, of course. And I think he's going to get more practiced as we go along. What so. a crazy way to cut your teeth. Just the, the, the gods, the realms of men. There's a I wall know. in our ancient order. And can we read that line though? Geez. Because it is. So, so good. Let me get to it. But we do have to read that paragraph. Marsh flushed a deeper shade of red. The Lord Commander must pardon my bluntness, but I have no softer way to say this. What you propose is nothing less than treason. For 8,000 years, the men of the Night's Watch have stood upon the wall and fought these wildlings. Now you mean to let them pass, to shelter them in our castles, to feed them and clothe them and teach them how to fight. Lord Snow, must I remind you, you swore an oath. I know what I swore, John said the words. I am the sword of the darkness. I am the watcher (laughs) on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards, guards the realm of men. Were those the same words you said when you took your vows? They were, as the Lord Commander knows. Are you certain that I have forgotten, that I have not forgotten some? The ones about the king and the laws and how he must defend every foot of his land and cling to each ruined castle? How does that part go? John waited for an answer. None came. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. These are the words. So tell me, my lord, what are these wildlings, if not men? Bowen Marsh opened his mouth. No words came out. A flush crept up his neck. It was like a mic drop moment. And he does that appeal to the logic that I think these men are like asking him for as a leader. It's tough if he's not even acknowledging all of the bad stuff that they're worried about, then they don't feel connected to him in the slightest. But mm-hmm. I feel like if he'd been talking like this the whole time, that he'd have less of a hard time convincing them. But even then, all the other stuff is still true. And it's just a series of mistakes or missteps or operating at 50% instead of 100% that he made along the way for, you know, X amount of time since he's been Lord Commander, since he's been at the wall, period. So... So, what do you think? So. Do you like it? <laughs> you know, I feel like this might be, maybe not this one, but if you're reading at speed, I feel like some John POVs before the stuff starts going down, I guess really it is it is kind of going down, but before they're crossing, I don't know. It's just kind of like repetitive. maybe it could have maybe it could have been compacted a little bit. It's a little repetitive, I think. I like it though because I like all these questions that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I like this. I like thinking about it like that. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's a little repetitive. It's like you, you know, when we prepare to do these episodes, I'll usually read the chapter just like I would normal read a normal book, which is like half reading, half skimming, just kind of getting through it. And then you finish that. And it's like, well, what are we going to talk about? Because we have the same dumb discussion. It's not a dumb discussion. We have the same discussion about um, John making mistakes as a Lord Commander and how that's going to mm-hmm. make him become a better man. Blah, blah, blah. Sure. It's like, what yeah. do you have to say about that? Time and time again, he makes the same mistakes. So, but I think that as we continue to like dig our heels into it and read into it and read the chapters again and kind of, I know that you and I, when we have discussions, it brings out a lot of stuff that we didn't think about the first time around. And so I definitely think that George R. Martin probably could have condensed things, but that there's not a lot of wasted breath necessarily when you pay attention. I like it because I have had, like you said, similar thoughts about the situation that he's in, but it keeps changing over time. And I love the the color I get from knowing like the stuff with Val, for example, and the way that he's reacted to all of it. I, I love the color I get further from John and the situation just based off of some interactions or even the pros about his situation with Tormund. A lot of it was just familiar, familiarly warm. And mm-hmm. it really connected me. There was a line when he was like, we're, we're not at Ruddy Hall anymore. And it connected me to this old episode of the podcast that was <clears throat> named after Ruddy Hall. And I was just like, Jesus, that was a million years ago. <laughs> yeah. And that was the same spirit he was reflecting in that same paragraph. Yeah. <clears throat> and I just felt really connected to it and sort of warm about what was happening and less about, I don't know, thinking that. I knew better. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. It's a little less pessimistic than my view. <laughs> but all that being said, then what do you give your own to the chapter? Is it a warm feeling own or or not? My own. This is a quote from Tormund Giantsbane. This is in response to John requesting all of the riches from the wildlings in order to pay for the room board as follows. The Bravosi will melt these down for the gold. He's taking these huge cuffs off his arms. That seems a shame, John says. Perhaps you ought to keep them. No, I'll not have it said that Tormund Thunderfist made the free folk give up their treasures while he kept his own. He grinned. But I'll keep the ring I wear about me, member. Much bigger than those little things. On you, it'd be a torque. Jesus. So I looked up a torque, and it's a kind of necklace. Ooh, okay. I wouldn't have known that. <laughs> so basically, he's saying that the ring that he wears around his member, he's referring to this huge arm cuff says, oh, those little things. <laughs> <laughs> good for him right so just a little bit of complexity not quite an outright i don't know what you would call it what is it called when you say something filthy what is I that i wouldn't know <laughs> not not quite an outright i don't know what you'd call that he's not being this is a much more subtle version he's He's be grown, he's grown in his ability to talk about himself. <laughs> yeah. I like it. The subtlety. I think that's a good way to put it. Good own. Thank you. I'm going to give my own to a couple different things. One 
when Shireen announces that she's a princess. I'm a princess too. I loved that. I thought that was awesome. I also want to give my own to um, when John gets to the top of the wall and he tells his squad, he's like, walk with me. And they walked west along the wall down the gravel strewn paths. And I, um, it just reminded me of the West Wing, a show that I love dearly and all of the walk and talk moments. It's like they're handling official business while they're like walking to the next thing. So I want to give an own to that. Nice. And that's pretty much it. Those are my two <laughs> half own Because the things that I really want to give my owns to, we've spent quite some time talking about, like the John. You can still do that. Yeah, I guess. But John saying that they made him Lord Commander. That's why he's not a sweet lad anymore. And then the whole amazing, the are slint they thing. not men? Did you see, what about that one? And he was like, just ask John of Slint. Oh, they were yeah. like, do you have the, I think Flint was like, do you have the belly like the Kings of Winter? There's a lot of good, like, there's a lot of good conversation in this chapter. Okay, we have an own from Peter at P94 at home. At P94 at home says, Val owns this chapter for me. She brought us torment. Har. Har. <laughs> She's... <laughs> She's to have one one as her guard and brought an attitude to Celise that was reflective of the free folk. Capped off with the line, you owe me a debt, Jon Snow. And then she strode away. That is an MVP performance. Amen to that. Yeah, Val kind of ruled in this chapter. Yeah, she did. Um, if you want to send in your own like Peter, you can do so in a number of in a number of different ways. You can send us a tweet on Twitter. You can send us a message on Instagram. You can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com or you can find us at Game of Owns on various social media platforms. Also, I want to give another own to that moment when they're walking back to the wall after he's just met up with Val after he's left Tormund and Ghost and... The crow or it's, it's John, Val, Ghost, and probably Blood Raven just hanging together, just walking. <laughs> I just loved that moment. And they, they go underneath the, uh, the wall mm-hmm. and the crow flies up like, Oh, let me get back over the wall. I just really liked it. Especially liked- no, knowing what that crow might be, you know, it adds to yeah. extra layer for sure. And I just like the, the energy of their little team there. And the patients are, I don't know if, if Blood Raven or, or Bran is feeling patient necessarily, but it seems like they are because they're just saying corn, you know? It seems like it, things aren't too critical at that particular moment. So it makes me wonder what's cooking in that tree in general. Well, and it's coming off of like the wall, that picturesque um, description of the wall too, which yeah. sets the tone a little bit. So. Seth- it sets the tone a little bit. It's a nice sort of respite from the stressfulness, but also it's not like the Winds of Winter crow where he's freaking out. This doesn't seem like that that's stressful. This reminds me of something that I know we <laughs> we stopped recording the podcast, but it reminds me of something that we didn't talk about. And I can't remember the exact context in which it comes, but John thinks to himself or he says out loud or he says something about how the this treaty with Tormund is getting this to happen is not the hardest part of his journey. And the hardest part of his journey is going to be what comes after and like the integrating of them together. And so of course he's going to walk away from this like moment with Tormund because everything is still okay. I mean, yeah, things are decently fine and that conversation went well and he trusts Tormund for better or for worse, but what's going to be the most difficult part 
is, I wish I could find where or remember what I was thinking of. Oh, here it is right here. He's talking to Val. She says, how do you fare with torment? Asked Val. Ask me a year from now. The hard part still awaits me. The part where I convince mine own to eat this meal I've cooked for them. None of them are going to like the taste I fear. Let me help. When she says she wants to help. Um, anyway, so like, of course the vibes are going to be kind of high after that conversation because the hard part is yet to come. So. Anyway, is that what you're even talking about? That just reminded it was. me of that. And, and that's why I think the crows, it's all good in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me think about what they might be cooking, you know, like what they know about and like why it's so important to casually check this moment out, to be there for this. Like what were Ghost and Val doing? It's these like more magical elements being brought into the background. The wall, the crow ghost, all these like magical underlyings while somebody like Melisandre is nowhere to be found are still playing a role. Maybe we'll find out on our next chapter on Game of Owns. Let me see what the next chapter is. <laughs> it's Cersei 1. Cersei chapter 1. 100. Weeks since we've been with Cersei. Months since we've been with Cersei. This is our first Cersei chapter Love in dance. dance. So, and it's chapter 100 of our Feast with Dragons read through. Holy so, moly. It's like when you, when you in elementary school, they do sell like the hundredth day of school. What? Okay. That's a whole other <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we did do uh, episode 450 was our last episode. Oh, really? Oh yeah. yeah. It's 451. That's pretty great. Yeah. Not as important yeah. as 420, but 450 yeah, is no, still pretty good. Near. Yeah, yeah, so. pretty good. If 500 would be to, cool. Go on. Sorry. 500 will be cool. <laughs> if we ever get there. <laughs> if you want to follow along with the reading order, if you want to catch up, if you want to read Cersei 1 for our next episode, you can find that at afeastwithdragons.com. That's right, y'all. That's pretty much it. This has been fun, though. This was a good chapter. I'm excited to get back into it. I was super amped. To talk about this on the podcast today. We're not going to see John for a while, so hope you got your fill. How long? Um, Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six episodes as, from now. That's like not that much, but I feel like we've been with John a lot recently. So Yeah, it's been kind of John and Danny City for a bit now. Such is the Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. We can stay hanging out if you want. We're not <laughs> I think that we talk about pretty much anything. If you no, want. because you've been we watching keep talking about other things cool when we're trying to end the episode. <laughs> this. Um, that's it. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. This is uh like we were just saying, four hundred and fifty episodes. Let's it's pretty going. awesome. We're having a good time, so we hope you are too. Bye bye. Bye.